I had previously said that the cryptids episode was the most Jackie we could get on the podcast. Well, I might have to shoot myself in the foot with that because with Jen occupied by summer reading endeavors, I now get to lead you through my geekiest geekouts of all time, which is saying something. That's right, gentle listeners. It's time to talk about the medieval period. Da-da-da! That was my fanfare. All right, anyways. Hey there, romance nerds. I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopal in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about romance landia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's Let's rage! rage! Jackie. Yes. Do you want to hear a joke from the medieval period? Sure. A young Florentine was going down to River Arnold. Doesn't really matter. I don't, some river, whatever. With one of those nets in which they wash wool and met a frocksome boy who, out of fun, asked him what birds he was going to catch with that net of his. I am going to the brothel, replied the youth, to spread my net there and catch your mother. (coughs) Oh, mind you search the place carefully, retorted the boy, for you will be sure to find yours there too. And one of the first, your mama jokes. (laughs) That was good. Mm -hmm. I was very caught up in the details. I was like, okay, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember where they are in the geography. But no, it was just a yo mama joke. (laughs) That's great. That was great. Thank you very much. Uh, Well, as always, we need to give Nopal a huge shout out for sponsoring Raging Romantics. We quite literally would not be here without them. Mm -hmm. And hey, romance nerds, if you're not also a savvy library nerd, you might not know that right now, like right this very instant, we're in the midst of summer reading. Jen is crying in the corner. (laughs) Libraries across the country hold massive reading programs all summer long to promote not only school-age children and teens reading, but also programs for adults. At Noble, we have contests, fun arts and crafts, movie showings, and the chance to win gift cards to local bookstores based on the books you already have sitting on your nightstand. So if you haven't yet, go check out your local (laughs) library branch and see what they're doing this summer. Chances are there's something to be had for everyone. It's going to be really fun. Go do it. Yes. Jen is driving a truck around the Syracuse Brewerton area Mm -hmm. this entire summer. So if you see a giant truck that says Nopal on the side. It's probably me. Wave ecstatically and like start throwing rotten tomatoes. No, don't throw rotten tomatoes. We like the truck. I don't want to crush. Unless it's cookies, then she'll try to catch them. Not while I'm driving. Oh, well, wait until she's parked and then throw cookies at her. (laughs) Oh, no. All right. Well, if that's all of our banter, Mm -hmm. that's some great banter we had there, Jen, you know. The moment you have all been waiting for for three years, I'm finally going to nerd out about medieval history to y'all because yes if you know me then you know the middle ages are my jam so much so to the fact that my first master's is actually in medieval studies humble brag not really just crying in student loans over here i wrote my dissertation as a study on a ninth century manuscript where i talked about the archaeology of the book and how information was transmitted and translated in its pages but the majority of my studies were focused on the early medieval period of northern europe and scotland and how people and nations visualized and enacted their culture and mores and latin so much latin if you ask me to translate something now i probably couldn't make it very far but back then look out catullus i could have given him a run for his money 
not really. My time period of specialty was post-Roman withdrawal from Britain through the early incursions of the Norse and Viking peoples and a little bit forward into the pre-Norman invasion of 1066. So roughly 4th century CE through the 10th and 11th centuries. If you haven't yet listened to our Vikings episode, then definitely go do so, as I cover a lot of history of that time period in this too. To be honest, there's a lot that goes into the medieval period, a lot of context, a lot of like little itty bitty tiny things, and I'm not going to be able to cover it all. You might be surprised to hear me count the 5th century as medieval, because it might seem a little early for what most people generally conceptualize as that time period. But indeed, the medieval period is largely counted as having begun in 476 CE. And remember, CE counts as current era. We use it instead of AD, because you know to get rid of religion in the discussion of things and just focus on the science. So CE. And that's partially why I haven't been brave enough to talk medieval romances until now. Because medieval history stretches nearly a thousand years up through the 15th century until approximately 1450 CE at the start of the English Renaissance. Just to put in some context there, that stretches from the quote-unquote collapse of the Roman Empire through the writing of the Quran, the Viking period, the Norman conquest of England, the Crusades in the Middle East, the foundation of the modern Catholic Church, Genghis Khan's unification of the Mongols, the foundation of the Habsburg and Tudor dynasties, Marco Polo, the creation of Oxford University, the Wars of the Roses, the Plague, the creation of the Aztec Empire, Joan of Arc, Constantine the Great, Charlemagne, Sir Francis Bacon, Geoffrey Chaucer, Dante, Christine de Pisa, and Mehmet the Conqueror, the Picts, the Ottomans, the Turks, the Anglo-Saxons, the Irish, the invention of the printing press, the invention of algebra, the invention of the sextant, the compass, and the invention of gunpowder, and so much more. So many things. In Spain, even the end of the medieval period is 50 years later in 1492. Jen, can you tell me what happened in 1492? Did I say 1452? Does Columbus sail the ocean blue? Yes. Is that one? Yeah, 1492. Columbus sails the ocean blue. It's the start of the age of exploration. We don't like Columbus, but we like exploration. (laughs) And that's a lot of history to try and cover in a 40-ish minute period. I mean, I can try to talk as fast as I did a couple minutes ago, but I don't know if anybody would be able to keep up let alone talk about medieval romance books on top of that. And medieval romance kind of spans the gamut. True, when we think of medieval romance, we try to we tend to think of European high medieval meaning knights and ladies and swords and charging steeds and castles, right? But in reality, I read everything from early medieval Scottish, my personal wheelhouse, all the way up through Tudor and early Renaissance. There are typically three mini periods of medieval history that are referred to when we're discussing this time frame, just so you guys aren't so confused when I keep saying early, high, late. We have early medieval, which spans roughly from 476 to 1066 and is sometimes called the Dark Ages, which is a bit of a misnomer. There are two reasons for this name. The first is an antiquarian way of thinking where scholars of the later centuries would look back on this time frame and see the quote-unquote lack of writing and fine art and consider it to have been quote-unquote dark conceptually speaking. Of course, this is a completely false narrative as art, language, culture, and nations were shifting and flourishing during this time period. Just look at the Norse. It's also called the Dark Ages because of a long-lasting famine and an ecological period of cooling. It's kind of freaky to be talking about this now because the Northeast, actually a lot of the Eastern coast, just went through a very large like miasma due to the smoke from the Canadian wildfires. And we're actually going through a second wave of it right now. So thinking about this in context of what I'm about to tell you guys is kind of freaky. Um, science has recently pinpointed the explosion of a, of a volcano in Japan in 536 CE, having caused a plume of ash that went up into the stratosphere and caused a miasma made of ash and fog and debris to descend over much of Europe for more than a year. Two additional explosions in 541 and 547 led to catastrophic changes. Temperature in summer dropped by about 2 degrees Celsius, so say it had been 20 degrees, it would have dropped to 18 degrees in Fahrenheit, that's 68 degree average to a 64 degree average. A nice warm balmy day to a, ooh, I need a sweater today. 
It may not seem like much, but as we all know in today's day and age, even the most infinitesimal climate change can have lasting effects. Crops fail, leading to famine, and the Justinian bubonic plague, not to be confused with the plague 800 years later, struck the Roman port of Pelusium in Egypt in 541, wiping out one-third to one-half of the population of the Eastern Roman Empire and striking at the breadbasket of the Middle East. But humanity moves on, as always, and as empires rose and fell and the centuries moved onward, so did progress and civilization. Again, go listen to the Vikings episode because I'm not covering that history here, but it's integral to understanding this time period of Northern Europe and Britain and Scotland and Ireland. Following the early medieval, we have the quintessential high medieval period, which lasted from approximately 1066 through 1351. We'll talk about this more fully for the rest of the episode, so don't really worry about it for now. Finally, we have the late medieval ages, which is classified typically by a societal shift away from the predominant feudal government and more towards a strong royalty-based monarchical system of nation-states that would reign supreme throughout most of Europe, especially in England, France, and the Iberian Peninsula, up through the start of the Renaissance and the Age of Exploration. Now, in truth, medieval feels a bit like a lost genre when we think about romance novels, which I think is why Jen was surprised I didn't talk about it last year when Mm -hmm. I did um, the Lost Genre series. I mean, like you said, it's like a gazillion yeah. of your degrees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so many different things to do. They seem to have been really popular during the bodice strippers of the 80s and 90s and somewhat into the early aughts, but now I feel like they're fewer and further in between. We've mentioned this so many times before, but the historical genre of romance novel now seems to primarily be ge- geared towards 18th century and onwards. Of course, you'll find exceptions to every rule. I'm not saying that medieval isn't published at all anymore. Of course, the European medieval paradigm rules in traditional publishing areas of fantasy, but you'll still find medieval in India and Scottish, and go listen to that episode. But the days of the knights and swooning ladies of the castle, of Norman conquerors and bold lassies wielding swords in defense of their family's domain, where have they gone? And that is what we're talking about for medieval, right? Yes. It's knights. Yeah. It's like hanging out on a horse with the, yeah. the stick. What's that called? The Lance. Yeah, The Lance. It's called The Lance. It's like the stuff. Hello. Like, Name that movie. <laughs> like Connie Mason did a bunch of these books. Yes. Like Lord of the Castle yeah. and the, yeah. the Lady with the Long Sleeves yes. and that kind of a thing. Yeah. Okay. We're getting there. Okay. Well, no, I just wanted yeah. to make sure it was defined. Because yes. like, yeah. think, I think, I feel like when I used to read medieval stuff, it was like maybe a knight, mm-hmm. but I was a little confused, honestly, of like the, the time period. And yeah. The, I, it was never that important to me yeah. to know, for, to be honest. Yeah. That's why. I, but like <laughs> just trying to like picture it in my head. Yes. So that's why we have the early medieval, yeah. which we're not really worrying about. That is that first mm-hmm. like 500 odd years. Yeah. Math. But like, 500 med- years. medieval is always like knights. There wasn't another in aspect. romance books. Yeah. I mean, now there is, but for like mm-hmm. the high point of the bodice ripper yeah. medieval romance, it was the high medieval. Yeah. It was knights shining and ladies armor. in castles and mm-hmm. shining armor and jousting and okay. this stuff Going that we tend crusades. to think of. Yeah. I yeah. know that happened. Yep. Like, the crusades. Yeah. yeah. As important as okay. the Napoleonic Wars were to Regency romance, mm-hmm. the crusades were important to medieval romance. Gotcha. Um, and like they never took place in the crusades, right? The ones I read was always like, oh, he came back from the crusades, yeah. tortured no, or something. No, they pretty much always took place. There were a couple of really questionable ones. I think Connie Mason did a couple questionable mm-hmm. ones about um, the European knight in the sheikh's palace sort mm-hmm. of thing, which I don't like even what, know. Like what, like the sheikh's daughter yeah. kind of yeah, a thing? Yeah, like the harem, harem mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah, so, you know, the ones you go, mm, I don't really want to read that right now. Yeah. Nowadays, we're like, ooh, that's probably not a good thing to write about. But mostly it was, like, them returning from war, coming back to their family's yeah. estate, their, to the okay. domain, and finding that, like, their so famine like, had gone through. This is usually in England, then. England, we're talking mostly about England and France, because that's okay. where the majority of them were based. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Okay, cool. Well, I finally have carte blanche, thanks to Jen. So we're going to be diving back into the lost genres of romance with a multi-parter dedicated to the thousand years of medieval history. Hopefully that sentence did not make you turn off the podcast. If you're still listening, don't worry. I'm going to make this as fun as possible, and I'm going to insert as many inappropriate and gruesome facts as I can. If you want to know about the pair of English, just let me know. I love that fun to you is gruesome. <laughs> Listen, there's a lot of gruesome stuff going on, and uh, it was great. Anyways. For this first episode, we're going to delve into the history, and to frame that, I want to say that we are, as Jen and I just talked about, going to be talking about the high medieval period, and we're going to be focusing on Europe, specifically France and England, because that is mostly what the medieval romances I think most people read and consumed will be familiar with, and what most popular media is obsessed with. Shows like The Tudors, Reign, The White Queen, The White Princess, The Spanish Princess, etc. have thoroughly enmeshed late medieval societies in Western mindsets, although I don't think Jen has watched any of these. No. No. Yeah. No. But we're going to be focusing a little bit earlier than these shows. If you watch White Queen and White Princess, you're kind of close to it, especially White Queen, because that takes place in like the shift from late medieval to the early, not quite Renaissance. And it looked at the Wars of the Roses through the start of the Tudor dynasty in the mid 1400s. But let's rewind and let's define high medieval culture. The high medieval period is the archetype that most people will think of when they think medieval. Stretching from approximately 1000 to 1300 CE, this time period was foundational for most of Western civilization. If we want to split hairs, technically we can say that the high medieval period lasted from the Norman invasion of 1066 through the end of the plague in 1351. It was a time when nation states coalesced around all powerful kingdoms and dynasties, and when wars and revolutions were fought over the changing of those shifting lands and royal families. Centralized monarchies established their rule with the de- with the idea of the divine right of kings, which claimed their literal right to be king as God-given, and that there was no higher being to them than God. This was also the time frame in which the church, capital C, became one of the highest powers in Europe and would remain so for centuries to come. For more info on the church, we talked about that in Scottish and Viking episodes. As a result of this belief, to some degree, the divine right of kings, we begin to see a highly stratified type of society, one in which the God-given right to rule sets aside the noble and royal class from the lower classes, the peasants, the serfs, the laborers. Yes, dear listener, this is when feudalism is most well known. Feudalism was a structured social system, say that 10 times fast, in which the crown, capital C on crown, owned all the land in the kingdom. It's important to note that, quote-unquote, feudalism, though itself derived from medieval terminology, is a term used by modern historians and archaeologists. Medieval people did not call their own society feudal. In fact, multiple societies throughout time and across the world have been described by modern researchers as just that. The word feudalism is described from medieval Latin feodum, meaning fee or fief, specifically the land or other property whose use is granted in return for service. The system had its roots in the Roman manorial system, where workers were compensated with protection while living on large estates, and in the 8th century kingdom of the Franks, who would give way to the Normans, where a king would give out land for life to reward loyal nobles and receive service in return in benefice. The feudal system proper became widespread in Western Europe from the 11th century onwards, largely thanks to the Normans as their rulers carved up lands wherever their armies conquered. In recompense for that land, they dispersed to their nobility. It was expected that rulers would be given primarily military service, but also remuneration in the form of gift giving, aka taxes, but let's not call it taxes because we aren't so crass as that. That would be the Plantagenets later. In return, these nobles were expected to provide goods and services for the land, gifts in the form of money, food, or commodities such as wool or wheat, and again, for military service. 
Now, obviously, the nobles couldn't be expected to work the land and livestock. <laughs> How gauche is that? So they, in turn, had different classes of people under their own dominion to help provide labor and defense. Vassals were tenants who had pledged fealty to their nobles in exchange for land or fiefs. They were given parcels of land by their lords in exchange for the goods and services they in turn provided to the lord who then provided a portion of those goods and services to the king. It's an upward flow just like multi-level marketing. Then there was the largest portion of the population in the workforce, the peasants, villains, or serfs. This large group of people were those who lived and worked on the land. They were obliged to give their lord, or the vassal who worked for the lord, remuneration and for living on the land in the form of labor and a, and a share of produce. In exchange, they usually got a place to live and to some degree military protection. However, they were also, of course, expected to serve their lord or vassal in times of war as soldiers and warm bodies if they were called to it. Again, it's all about upward flow and providing to your lord, who in turn provided to the king, your divine sovereign. This idea of landed nobility providing for their divine ruler wasn't a new one, but medieval feudalism was a social construct that mostly was a result, at least in England, of the Norman Conquest in 1066. Of course, rulers had had people underneath them who then had down and outs underneath them since like the dawn of time, but when William the Conqueror established his domain in England following his invasion, not only did he start the castle building trend in Britain, but he also started doling out seized land to the knights who had helped him conquer English shores. From there, he established his dynasty, the House of Normandy, which ruled through 1135 before it was taken over by the Plantagenets. And I'm not getting any more into ruling dynasties because that is a very tangled web. Suffice to say, this started the idea of landed nobility as gifted by a divine king who owned all the land and was gracious enough to parcel it out to his buddies, who then had a large workforce under them. And to add an extra layer to this towering cake, this workforce, at least under the Normans, were the Anglo-Saxons and native British peoples. So yes, the Normans were colonizers. Ain't that fun. Anywho, under feudalism, Europe became, as I said earlier, a largely stratified society with strict social classes that were hard to move through. Through marriage and wealth, you could possibly move one, maybe two classes, but a peasant could never become king, no matter what Cinderella stories I would have you believe. There was an oddball case in Sweden in 1523 where a peasant did become a king, but that's technically past the medieval period, so we're not going to think about it. Besides the flow of wealth, this stratification also created ideas which I want to focus on later in the episode, because there's still ideas which influence our society and romance novels today. Namely, chivalry emerged as part of the martial culture of feudalism, as well as the idea of what makes a man a man and a woman a woman in Western eyes. Again, we'll talk about this more in depth later on and in our next episode too, but just for now, know that martial culture is the social set of beliefs and actions that is focused on military prowess and might, and it became the epitome of medieval feudalistic society. A king was the highest martial force in the land. His nobles were his knights, his closest men-at-arms, not to be confused with actual knights, huh. which I'll talk about here in a bit. And they were expected to uphold social expectations and ideals of these martially strong figures. This meant that things like castles, horses, displays of wealth, hunting, and even your deer parks, where he kept your deer larder, became ingrained in what it meant to be a high-class man. And for women, well... Naturally, it's a complicated subject, but we'll boil it down to unfortunately saying that yes, while women could and did hold positions of power and sometimes were even known for their military prowess, mostly they were seen as the female archetype, mothers, wives, and daughters. And so we begin to see this idea of things solely dedicated to quote-unquote women's work. Yes, sewing and embroidery and childbearing, but also managing finances and the quote-unquote staff, organizing feasts, and other social events. And note here, I'm focusing on the higher classes, vassals, nobility, and upwards, because these were the social classes that people were trying to become and to emulate, and the ones that we have the most historical resource for. 
Feudalism in Europe and England saw its death knell ring with the consequences of the Black Death. Now again, remember that feudalism is a more modern descriptor and has been used to describe other societies such as the Zhao period of China from 1046 to 256 BCE and the Edo, Edo? Edo? I'm not entirely sure. I apologize. Should have looked that up. Period of Japan from 1603 to 1868 CE. As horrid as it sounds, because of how many people died during the bubonic plague and specifically how many serfs and peasants died, aka the workforce, feudalism was upended and social structure in Europe irrevocably changed. Now, as a brief aside for anybody who is not familiar with the plague, the Black Death, the Great Mortality, the Bubonic Plague, arrived on the shores of Italy on a ship that docked in Messina, a major port of call and pilgrimage, in October 1357. From there, on fleas and infecting rats and humans, the plague spread like wildfire. Over the next couple of years, it would kill more than 20 million people in Europe alone, almost one-third of the continent's population, and the entire population of New York State in 2021, including the city. Now, of course, I think it goes without saying that a vast majority of these who of those who died were peasants and lower class. But there is hope on the horizon because those who were left behind found themselves with more bargaining power in the workforce. I say this and it kind of makes it seem like they unionized and bargained with their lords and vassals. And in some cases, they did. As Europe was severely depopulated by the plague, the serfs and peasants were so suddenly part of an increasingly rare asset, laborers. Lords and vassals obviously could not feed themselves or their families or even pay tithes to the king and church without this labor. This loss, the loss of so many meant that survivors could now negotiate for pay and better treatment, meaning that lower classes had collateral they never had before, like luxury items and bargaining capabilities. The shift of power, this shift of power had lasting effects, namely being that following the plague, we see events like the Peasant Revolt in France in 1358, the Guild Revolts of 1378, and the famous Peasants' Revolt of London in 1381. In addition, population shifted towards the cities and away from the countryside as opportunities and industries such as trade, exploration, and production increased, especially as the Guild system began to grow during the 13th century, even though it would later collapse under its own weight in the 16th. Any questions? Comments? Okay. And that's enough socioeconomics. Let's make our way towards things that are closer to romance novels. Chivalry and manliness. Now, feudalism is important to understanding these concepts, as I said earlier, because it's a societal framework towards these two concepts that we still hyperbolize today. Jen, I'm not going to ask you to define manliness because that is a loaded topic. But can you give me a definition or perhaps a perception of chivalry? Rules of how to treat women. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a start. Yeah, that's definitely an aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Nice. Probably not just women, but I feel like it's usually associated with women. Yeah. I, it's probably tied into like honor. That's too. definitely what it's become in today. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It Chivalry evolved as a code of ethics for a class under feudalism that we haven't yet spoken of, the knights. Knights, aka chevalier, and yes, chivalry is taken from the word chevalier, so called because of the cheval or horses that they rode. Knights were the fighting class. They were the warriors. But as the idea of chivalry and manliness evolved over the medieval period, the idea of who was chivalric also changed. To begin, knights were held to high standards. Remember that medieval culture highly valued martial prowess. Of course, it's a society that evolved out of conquest and colonization and seizing land, then distributing that seized land to your loyal vassals who could hold it in your name. I think it goes without saying then that those who upheld that martial prowess were seen as the epitome of the society. As I mentioned before, the king was seen to be the highest power in the land under God, and certainly he was, and that's why whenever we see a coronation, like we saw in May with Charles, spurs and swords were resplendent throughout the ceremony because they are representative of that chevalier, of that knightly class, of that martial power. But there's only one king. 
technically speaking, sometimes, hopefully, there's only one king. <laughs> he cannot, despite what he may say, fend off hordes of enemies all on his own. And statistically speaking, he wouldn't normally be in battle because if he died, then you don't have a king, right? So instead, the martial needs fell to the fighting class, his vassals, and specifically the chevalier. So when the knightly class was first instated, instated, is that a word? Sure. 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 When it first became a thing, <laughs> um, the knights were the vassals, right? The knights were the ones directly under William the Conqueror, and I'll mm -hmm. get to William the Conqueror in two seconds. The first knights were professional cavalry soldiers, hence the name, and famously were led by William the Conqueror in the Battle of Hastings. He had somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 chevaliers in his emploi, 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 with all their heavy horses included. And please admire how I'm not going down a horsey rabbit hole right now. I really appreciate that. It took that. so much That's work not job. to do that and to talk about horsies. But anyways, so the first knights were these the handymen that William the Conqueror relied on. And he would, they were the first ones who were gifted land by William the Conqueror. But as time went on, as we start getting into that high medieval period, the knights kind of separated themselves, not like actively like, oh, I don't want to be a vassal anymore, but like they were kind of stratified from the vassals. So the vassals were the ones who got the land and who were holding the land for the king. Mm -hmm. And then they had this workforce under them that were the martial prowess, that were the knights that were doing all the dirty work for them. Yeah, I mean, this doesn't sound like a system that you, you, you have to have some muscle, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Wow, it's pretty bleak. Yeah. And knights could and did hold land, but for the most part, they were they were the vassals under the vassals. But, like, the knights were holding it all together, yes. this whole system. Yeah. Hmm. Somewhat. And then, of course, the laborers were actually the ones who so, were doing all the dirty work. Okay, so, like, if the knights aren't getting land or stuff anymore, what's in it for them? Do they get paid well? Wealth, yeah. Okay. They they are getting wealth. Um, they're getting horses. They're getting all the ladies. Mm. Um, they do have land. They can get gifted land, and they can get gifted domains and their own serfs and their own like crops and everything like that. But mm. it's never going to be as much land as a vassal will hold, as a lord, as a noble will hold. Mm. So did I mention earlier about how you could move up one or two classes? If, through marriage? I, yeah. The knights were the ones who could move up. Okay. So, so kind of like a knight on his chessboard could mm -hmm. move around and like right. do all this stuff. The knights were the ones who could move up social classes and they could mm -hmm. become lords. Um, there's the movie, um, um, The Last, oh gosh, I can't even remember. The Last Duel, which is actually based on a true historical event that yeah. took place and it's a it's a really rough movie to watch because it's about rape and everything like that. But one of the main characters was a knight who was gifted land and who was gifted a domain. Mm -hmm. And so that's how he came to be so powerful because he won it all. Okay. Through conquest. So so if the knights can move up, I'm assuming through marriage, like they get to marry like a nice vassal daughter. Mm -hmm. Do the vassals marry their daughters off for like to have a fighting force mm -hmm. or is it like, okay. To have a fighting force, to have a name, mm -hmm. um, especially as tournaments became more popular in the like um, high to late medieval period, these knights um, started getting names, started getting a lot of wealth, started mm -hmm. accumulating a lot of stuff. And so these older vassals and these older fiefdoms were kind of declining as they were losing their workforce, especially through the plague, they lost their workforce, right? So they needed they needed money mm -hmm. coming in. And if they only had daughters or if their land was split up amongst too many sons, they would marry a daughter off to a really wealthy knight who would then bring in all the money mm. into into the fiefdom. Okay. I completely lost where I was going because uh, I went time. off script and that was my own fault. Over time, the Chevalier became less of a fighting class. As I just said, there was kind of this evolution from the knights under William the Conqueror to the vassals of mm -hmm. the like late medieval period. I guess we'll say high medieval period to late medieval period. Um, they became less of a fighting 
class, even though the Crusades and continued border battles assured the need for warriors, and it became more of a gentleman-like class, if you will. Likewise, the process of becoming a knight changed. Instead of being strictly a trained military position where before, you know, you, you like like in Sparta, you would be trained from a young age, you are fighting and you are only fighting and you're becoming the best warrior you can. Instead, knights were started as boys and raised as loyal vassals and servants to their liege. From the age of seven, they were formally trained not only in martial skills, but also in worldly ways. They received an education in law, politics, sometimes medicine, language, and history. And importantly, they were raised with mores that would become known as chivalry. Respect for the church, protection of the poor and the weak, loyalty to one's feudal or military superiors, and preservation of personal honor being foremost on the list. Mm. And sadly, the women were included under the poor and the weak. Well, yeah, I figured. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting, though, because I feel like... probably none of their jobs actually let them do this because mm. if they're like the, the force holding this whole system together mm-hmm. i imagine they're the ones that get to go beat up the serfs yeah and like yeah that's why like in robin yeah. hood you get the the idea of the bad right the bad sheriff mm-hmm. right now importantly in the 13th century there was a shift in the need for knighthood the crusades demonstrated a need for more fighters than there were knights And as the English and French went to battle, again, back home, lords and kings began to employ mercenary soldiers in place of knights. There were plenty of these mercenaries returning home from the Crusades, and certainly they were cheaper than knights. You didn't have to raise them from childhood, so you're saving on food and lodging. They usually were of noble birth, so if they died, they weren't going to offend anybody who might pose a threat to the monarchy. And they were a larger workforce than the knights class. So you had more warriors who, while not formally trained and maybe not necessarily upholding upholding this chivalric belief, they at least proved they could survive a war and wield a sword. Hmm. Thus, the idea of a knight became something more mythical than what the reality had been in the earlier medieval period. And especially as literature evolved and new genres became popularized with educated populace, i.e. the nobles, chivalry as an idea really took off. And that genre, dear listener is the romance. Yes, this is where the first official romance story was born. How many years between like the the concept of a knight to like when it got romanticized? Was it like decades, centuries? It was a couple centuries. Oh, okay. So it took a while to get to that yeah. point. So if you think about it, William the Conqueror, 1066, yeah. and then the first like we'll get into this in the next episode, mm-hmm. but the first real like romances came out in the 14th century, okay. like late 13th, early 14th. Okay. So, but it's not centuries. like a lot of brutal knights like telling their children, "Oh, I was great. I protected no. the poor." This was women's <laughs> tales. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And that, dear listener, is where I'm going to leave you hanging because this episode is already at a half hour and I don't know if you necessarily want to listen to me ramble on for another half hour about chivalric culture. So that's where I'm going to leave you until next time. (laughs) Um, Do you have any questions or anything? Okay, cool. And I say that kind of not really because our next episode is actually going to be a special episode because I'm happy to announce that we have a special guest star joining us on Raging Romantics. Emma Denny is the author of the new gay medieval romance One Night in Hartswood and she's going to be joining us to talk about her book, the love story, her research, and what it's like to be a debut author. So make sure to tune into that when it comes out on Friday, July 28th available wherever you get your podcast. Woo! Yeah! I will not be there for that one. No. I have truck stuff, but yeah. I'm looking forward to it for Jackie. Jen is going to be losing her mind even more so than she already is. It'll be okay. So It's going to be worth it. Yeah. The kids will be so happy. Yeah. I think in the meantime are you do you have anything you're reading right now (laughs) i just finished the way through the woods by long lit Wone, 
she is a grieving widow who lives in Norway. And after the death of her husband, she got really into mushroom hunting. Oh. So oh, I know this. Okay. Yeah. So it's like half of a memoir. It's unfortunately it ended up being mostly a guide to mushroom hunting, which is sort of interesting, but it was a lot more detail than I was prepared for. I thought it would be a mix of like of grief and, and how she got through it. It was interesting overall. I will say I did have to... to skim a little bit but like she has this great section on poisonous mushrooms that Ooh. i really enjoyed did you know you cannot eat any mushrooms that grow out of horse manure because they're all so high in nitrogen oh, okay. um that it could kill you from the nitrogen cool. but then also they have a um, psychotropic drug that is naturally produced from horse manure good to know i wonder if she knows that <laughs> but it was an interesting book overall but maybe more for if, if you have a deep desire of knowing how to hunt mushrooms, it might be Mushroom better for you. Lovers. Yeah, it just wasn't that much about the grief, and I thought that's what it was mm. going to be more. But it was interesting. I'm glad I read it. All right. Well, I am still thoroughly in the middle of my contemporary rom-com spicy reading mood. So I actually have two I would like to recommend. The first is Love Theoretically by Allie Hazelwood, which is third-ish in the Steminist series, which isn't really a series. You can kind of read them apart from each other, but it was still really good, and it touched, touched really close to home. It's um, academic rivals to lovers in the sense that he dissed her academic field mm. back in the day and like pretty much ruined her academic field. Aww. Not just her, but like the entire field. Because he wrote this piece, and this is based on something that actually happened in academia. He wrote this piece that like ended up being a false piece but everybody took it as like oh my god this is so revolutionary oh my god you're right like this is exactly what we should be doing this is so groundbreaking and then it came out that it was like all fake mm. and so that just kind of showed that this section of academia was like maybe not as good as it should have been and yeah. so everybody kind of disses it but she's going out for this job and lo and behold that he is on the board mm. of like review for the job so it's really good it's got nice spice in it and like I said, it just hit really close to home for me, and I can't really describe how it did, but it just did, so that was fun. The other one was Unfortunately Yours by Tessa Bailey. Yes, this is three for three episodes by now that I've mentioned Tessa Bailey, because I love her so much. Um, this one is set in Napa Valley, so if you're a wino, you might like this one, like me. Um, and it has to deal with the prodigal daughter coming home, and it's got a marine who is very, very spicy, and it is very, very fun. And I should not have read this at work. So, unfortunately, yours by Tessa Bailey. Sounds good. Thanks. Well, thanks again for joining us, Romance Nerds. I know this one wasn't as long as some of our other ones, but I figured you might yeah. not want me to info dump any more mm -hmm. on you. So It's something to look forward to. Yes. Multiple things. Digest the information on feudalism and high medieval culture and go watch A Knight's Tale. It's one of the best ones out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and in the meantime, Jen, what do we always say? Rage on! Bye, guys. Oh, I forgot you had to pull up a joke. <laughs> I forgot too. <laughs> you were just so excited to get into the medieval. You were so excited to hear all the details about the plague and 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 the social structure <clears throat> and multi-level marketing. I'm trying to find a small one. That's what she said. <laughs> the Viking period, the Norman conquest of Asia. Wow, of Asia. <laughs> <laughs>